Well, good morning everybody. I see we've got a bit of an old woman at the back there with a jacket over his knees. One would never think he was a hard South African. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, we continue today, of course, with the book of James, God's inspired word given to us by the Holy Spirit. The passage that we will study is at the end of chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. Please could you turn there now. Now, there was a time in my life, 12 or 13 years ago, when I believed that I had a very clear career path ahead of me. At the time, I was in the corporate world. I was working for Castrol in Zimbabwe. And thanks to an organisational restructure, I got a very nice promotion. And my reporting lines changed at that time. I ended up uh, reporting to a chap in Johannesburg rather than a fellow in Harare where I worked. And yes, I know sometimes the ways of multinationals are mysterious, but there you go. I was very fortunate. I had a a very good team around me and uh, the division that I managed was doing very well and the the chap in Johannesburg, he was making some noises about me moving down to South Africa to take over a bigger job. It all seemed very clear and very obvious and very satisfactory. In the fullness of time, I would have that nice corner office with the air conditioner and the secretary and ultimately I might get a gold watch. Hmm. And yet, here I am today, I'm living in another country, I'm doing completely different work, and my time in the corporate world is a fading memory. You know, in the same way that that restructure suddenly appeared and all that opportunity opened up, another bigger company came along and swallowed Castrol up, I won't bore you with the details, but between that and my friend Mr. Mugabe, in a few years, we were on our way here to the land of the long white cloud, which I see has sort of gone away. No, I can still see him up there. (laughs) And now I stand behind this pulpit doing things I would never have imagined in a place I would never have imagined. I'm sure that many of us can talk about similar experiences, and for sure they're part of the common history of man. And as we will see, things were no different nearly 2,000 years ago. Our question for today is, how does our anticipation of the future fit into God's plan? If it does, in what way? Well, to find out, let's read through God's instructions then. Let's go to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... We will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows how to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. 
May God bless us in the understanding of his word this morning and may our lives reflect what we have heard. I'd like to take a little bit of time out here before we carry on just to try to put something perhaps only in my own mind to rest. Two weeks ago I was listening to a devotional on Radio Rima where the presenter was explaining in a very humorous way how as a young Christian he was so on fire for the Lord and so enthusiastic that whenever there was an altar call he would go running up to the front. He said even if it was for ladies he would be found at the front. But it dawned on him after a while that more and more he was going up to the front of the church to apologise to God for something because he was being wrapped by guilt because of what the preacher had said. He lost sight of the fact that by far the biggest part of our relationship with God is based on love. God is love. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. God loves us. Remember that. Okay, that's good. Now, carry that thought forward as we open this passage. Because in common with many of these bits of James, they're quite strong messages to us. The thing is that comparing ourselves with the standards set out in the Bible can often leave us profoundly discouraged and feeling that we can never match up to God's expectations. It sometimes makes us feel guilty that there are no uplifting experiences to be found in church and that week after week we just get a pounding for all the things that we have fouled up. I pray that I have not done this to you. I'm sorry if I have. I do pray, in fact, I am most anxious and hopeful that through the preaching of his word, the Holy Spirit has stirred you up and most importantly has changed you. The fact is that if we have begun to dwell on these negative things, then we have a very unbalanced view of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Because while it is right for us to feel bad about the things that we have done wrong, to apologise to God for doing them, and then to repent, to change our mind, and then try not to do them again, we mustn't drag those feelings around with us as the biggest part of our daily experience with God. We must also be aware that there's a possible trap where we confuse works with worship. I feel bad when I do bad things, so I try to do good things, so I feel good. If I feel good, then these things must be the right things to do. Soon this pattern begins to define our relationship with God. This is wrong, firstly because we've got that spotlight on the wrong person. Our lives ought to be lived for God's glory, not our own feelings. Secondly, he wants us to be obedient. I'm sorry to break the news to you, but obedience doesn't always feel good. Remember what Christ has done for believers, for you and for me. That was a big thing, a very big thing, an extraordinarily loving thing. Thanks to that act, God has wiped the slate between us clean and he continues to keep it clean as we work with him in the process of sanctification. God doesn't generally use his word as a whip to lick us into shape, but rather as a reminder. He's saying to us, this my child, this this is where I want you to go. I'm wise and I love you and I do know 
what is best for you. Once we get a sense of His great love at work in us, what can our response be but to reply in kind? That guilty kind of fear that I was talking about, this chap running up and down to the altar, it's got no place here. God wants to help us. He doesn't want to hurt us. So let's be encouraged as we study God's Word today. Continuing then with James. In my last sermon, you will remember, you will remember, yes, I'm picking on you. (laughs) Mike, I'm afraid for you. (laughs) You will remember that James gives a multi-dimensional view of what happens when we speak ill of others. What happens to them, how God views it, and what is the consequence for us. This time he alters the scene slightly while still asking the same basic questions. He asks, well, how will it be when instead of talking about others, we talk about ourselves? So, let's, let's have a look. James does not believe in making a point without getting our attention. That's always a good strategy when you're trying to talk to someone. He begins, come now. And not in the sense, <coughs> uh, excuse me, excuse no, he's not like that. Okay? That's not the language that he's using. He's saying, come now. Okay? He has a strong point to make and he wants us to listen. He also wants to drag our imaginations back to the present, to now. Come now, because he knows that often we're off with the fairies somewhere, thinking about another time and place. Those are not real. Now is real. Come to now, says James. Come now, you who say. It seems to me that the act of speaking out desires is so important. Earlier in the book of James, we've already discussed how the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Recently, I was looking at one of Spurgeon's sermons where he speaks of sins of omission and sins of commission. And he says, Probably, dear brethren, we that are believers have been enabled by divine grace to escape most sins of commission. But I, for one, have to mourn daily over sins of omission. If we have spiritual graces, yet they do not reach the point required of us. If we do what is right in itself, yet usually we mar our work upon the wheel, either in the motive or in the manner of doing it, or by the self-satisfaction with which we view it when done. We come short of the glory of God in some respect or another. We forget what we ought to do, or doing it we are guilty of lukewarmness, self-reliance, unbelief, or some other grievous error. Spurgeon is saying that sins of omission are mostly internal. They are sins of not doing what we ought to do, that we know to be right. And usually, there is no evidence of them happening to the eye of an outside observer. They do have a kind of potential, however, to turn into sins of commission, doing sins, if you like, through physical actions and very often how we use our mouths. Sins of omission remain sin, but allowing them to grow to commission is like sin squared. So, we must be careful about what we say, or we may pile sin on sin through the fire of the tongue. Moreover, what we say is a picture of our real internal characters. In his sermon last week, Calvin used a passage from Matthew 12. Guess what? You're going to hear it again. Jesus is addressing the Pharisees when he says, 
brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Whose power does our speech demonstrate? Is it God or is it Satan? Do we speak a reflection of Christ's new life within us to the people around? Or do we speak death in the same way as the unbeliever? What lies in your heart, well, it's just a possibility. But what comes out of your mouth has got life and reality. It is force. It moves and affects us. It moves and affects other people. Why do you think that we find motivational experts telling us to vocalize our goals because they know that speaking has power do you remember also Calvin's example last week of the air race pilots they, they prepare the maneuvers on the ground and if you've watched any of this on TV you'll have seen the guy actually closes his eyes and he pretends he's flying his plane on the ground and you see him doing this it looks like he's mad but he's, he's making that thing real to him so that when he comes to do it, he knows what to do. And this is the same kind of thing because speaking out intentions firms up our resolve to bring them to the stage of action. I think it might be a good idea to go to Auckland and make a profit. So I will say it first to myself and then maybe I'm going to go and say it in front of some others. It sounds good. It has strength. Now I am committed because it is public, so I will do it. But what is the root of that idea? Is it me or is it thee? Jesus' words to the Pharisees are harsh and quite correctly in the circumstance. However, there is a really bright pearl of light in them. Notice how this passage points out the fruit of a good man. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. I hope that all of us in this building are good people. As good people we have a responsibility to speak out good things, to share the treasure of our hearts. Because those words, folks, they are literally words of life. More than anything else, our words have power through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to bring unbelievers Christ. It's very serious. We must not, we cannot keep the good news of Christ hidden in our hearts. It must be shared. Practically, this means that our speech must focus on good, positive, and wholesome things. And God, He should live here on our lips. What do I mean by that? Well, firstly, if there is to be outward evidence, there must be inward substance and that begins with our, our first acceptance of Christ as our saviour but it is fed by meditation and memorization of God's word and spending time in prayer secondly like an iceberg the part that shows must be the same as the part that doesn't I mean you'll never see an iceberg that's pure ice under the water but then turns to rock above the water, will you? It's made of the same stuff through and through. And that's obvious no matter at which part you look. 
So to those who see us, Jesus' presence in us should be obvious in what we say and what we do and it must stem from what we are. Doing, we have spoken about in earlier sermons. So what about saying? Okay. How is saying going to give evidence of God within us? We can start with no cursing, no slander, no lies, no anger. And we can fill those conversational spaces with encouragement and compliments and truth. We can speak of God as real, sharing our experiences of him day to day as if he were a visible person. Most of all, we can speak those words of life and share the gospel with those around us. None of this is a revelation to anyone. We've all heard this before and we all know this to be the case. But do we do it? Are you challenged? Are you convicted? I can tell you, I certainly am. And I pray that we won't leave it in that place, but we will go away and start living it out today. Let's go back to our passage. As we will see in a little while, James wants us to give witness to God's sovereignty too. But before we go there, we must understand what his objection is. So far, he's gotten our attention. He has drawn us specifically to the body part, which is the problem. And now he shows us where we start to go wrong. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Well, what's wrong with that, you might say? That's a very normal sort of thing to do, and we all do it. I mean, I spent years doing it in that office. Is it the idea of being focused on business, of making a profit instead of doing God's work? Well, let me restate what I said then in another way. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to New Plymouth and speak, spend a week there having prayer meetings and Bible studies. Do you think that might solve the problem? Well, no. Actually, it doesn't solve the problem if we don't notice what is missing. It isn't the activity, because we've substituted a spiritual one for a worldly one, and the difficulty remains. But where, might we ask, is God in these things? Are these things his will? Have we committed them to him? Do we recognise his providential work in everything we do? Well, unfortunately not. We tend to be very self-absorbed. And we do things on our own, not recognising that to take the position of I will, makes us just like Satan. And uh, we read about Satan and, and I will in Isaiah 14. For you have said in your heart, and we're talking about Satan here, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. God doesn't mind if we make plans or provision for the future and it isn't a sin to have aspirations if we include him in these things. And it is the manner of that inclusion that is vital. To put God as Lord of our lives, to have his will and not I will before us and everything is right 
and pleasing to Him. So, in our lives, we should never treat Him as a passenger or leave Him behind at the bus stop. He must be with us both in the planning and in the execution of the journey. You know, we have got a fascination with the future. We'd love to know what it holds. Especially, I'd like to suggest, the winning number for next week's lotto. We have nice little daydreams about what we would do with the money, or the widows and the orphans who would help, the new Ferrari, the flash lifestyle block. Oh, I think probably I'm digressing. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Yeah? We're thinking about something that may not happen. As James says, I thought I was going to a corner office in South Africa, but here I stand. Could I have changed that? Did I have any inkling that things might be different? Sadly, as much as I'd like to believe I'm in control, the fact is that I am not. I never have been and I never will be. I have no certainty about what will happen tomorrow or indeed even one second from now. You know, perhaps before I finish the sermon, a meteorite's going to smash through the ceiling and kill me in front of you. That would be exciting. <laughs> Thank you for the vote of confidence. <laughs> no man, that is for sure, and this is James's first reason for, for telling us, that it is foolishness to exclude God from our plans. No man knows what is going to happen tomorrow. And he now goes on to give us his second reason. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Yeah? Well, I brought a little vapour demonstrator with me today. It smells good. Okay? That's your life from God's perspective. Yeah? Pretty sobering, isn't it? That all our struggles and our hopes and our dreams and accomplishments in this world amount exactly to that. Yep. Now, there's an important point here. I'm not suggesting that any of us have no meaning or worth. We need to separate the temporal and the physical, the here and now, from the spiritual. Firstly, let's remember that God exists outside time. So that what seems for us a very long lifetime is really just an instant to him. Secondly, if you doubt your worth to him, remember that as father, he was prepared to sacrifice his son for you. As the son, he was prepared to set aside his deity and live a life here on earth as a mere man, then to suffer an appalling death on a cross and pay, a lot, pay the price for a lifetime of your sin, all the while being blameless himself. And then lastly, as Holy Spirit, he is prepared to patiently guide you towards a Christ-like character throughout your life. The whole trinity of God, God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, love you enough and value you enough to be jointly and completely committed to that work. Isn't that marvellous and amazing? I just can't 
understand how God could do that for me. Doesn't it speak volumes about the value God places on the eternal life of your spirit? So we mustn't be confused or dismayed by James' illustration, but we should see that in context it shows the transitory nature and ultimately the futility of our grand plans and projects where they do not include God. Let us remember that we could have all of the money in the world, but it is utterly useless in the next one. If we work with God and for God, however, we can lay up a store of treasure that will bring us a heavenly reward. Surely that is worth labouring for. With the knowledge that our lives are truly no more than that vapour that you've just seen, that might disappear when we don't expect it, we should have every incentive not to waste any time. So whatever God wants us to do, let us start now, don't delay. Because we only have one life. We don't know when it will end. And there's a lot to be done. When I was at high school, our headmaster had a phrase that he loved to repeat at every opportunity. There are two kinds of people in the world, he'd say, problem solvers and problem finders. Don't be a problem finder. As you can imagine, we were all thoroughly sick of that within a few years, but there's a truth there which James obviously subscribes to as well because after pointing out the problem and excluding God from our plans, He's a problem solver. He goes ahead to give us a solution. In verse 15 he says, Instead, you ought to say if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Earlier I spoke at length over the power of speech. Here we are called to give witness of God's sovereignty by the same means. You ought to say. And let's start off by understanding it doesn't mean that we should start every sentence with if God wills. Because if we did, that phrase would soon lose all meaning. And for some of us, it might even become a source of pride. Because, you see, I say, if God wills, at the beginning of every sentence. But that Roy Sandbrook bloke, he's definitely a sinner because he never says it. I will pray for you, brother. However, our behaviour and plans can consistently demonstrate our dependence upon the Lord. Okay? In order to understand how we are practically to use this advice about including God's will, let's see what the Bible provides us guidance. One of the most obvious places we will find God's will being acknowledged is, of course, in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, remember that in the same passage, Jesus instructed us to pray in this manner. Okay? Although we do repeat exactly his words, in a beautiful and meaningful prayer, it is clear that Jesus intended us to use what he has said as a pattern for prayer. It's significant that in that pattern, we must recognize the proper execution of God's will. His will, and not ours, carried out on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. Now, I want to quote here from a gentleman called Larry Richards, and he has a book called Every Prayer in the Bible says, when we pray, your will be done, we identify ourselves with God's will and commit ourselves to do it. Thus, to pray your will be done is both a personal commitment to moral obedience and a commitment to participate in the fulfilment of God's purposes here on earth. So we're saying to God, 
we agree, we understand the standard, and that we will live to that standard. Now this last bit I've added in, really, just because it's, I really like the picture. Okay? Richards further says, but the verse adds, on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Today, only earth is in rebellion against God. In heaven, God's will is done fully, joyfully, and spontaneously. In heaven, there is no hesitation in doing God's will. In heaven, there are no competing wills. How wonderful to desire only what God wants and what He knows is best. Wouldn't that be a fantastic thing to see, to live with, to aspire to? The next significant example of bowing to God's will is again given by Jesus, this time in the Garden of Gethsemane, where despite that enormous pressure of knowing the trial he was about to face and the understandable wish to escape it, Christ still said to his Father, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Throughout his time on earth, Jesus had gladly done the Father's will. He faced the ultimate temptation now, the almost unbearable pressure he felt was reflected in the anguish which he displayed and yet he still bowed to the Father's will. The interesting thing happens in Gethsemane because we see here the reversal of Eden. There Adam said, in effect, not your will, but mine, okay? And so sin entered our race. Now Jesus said, not my will, but yours. In the ultimate act of submission, he purged our sin, providing everyone who believes with eternal salvation. As always, the Apostle Paul provides a good example. There are a number of instances in various books of Paul deferring to God's will and his intentions. And I'll read just one of them from the book of Acts, chapter 18. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Sometimes, as Paul shows us, it is appropriate for us to speak out our commitment to doing God's will. But like I said earlier, note that we don't find him doing that in every sentence. But it's very clear from Paul's actions and his writings and also those that we see of other apostles in the Bible that God's will was always in the forefront of his mind. So we've seen how Jesus instructed us to pray both that the Father's will be done and for the manner of execution of that will. He gave us a personal example of living out God's will through trial it is worth pointing out at this point, pointing out at this, that's a bit com- complicated, that God's will may be for us to encounter tribulations. And 1 Peter 3.17 says, For it, it is better, if, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, sometimes God is going to call us to suffer as part of his will. Lastly, we have these many examples of Paul and recognising his own will to be subordinate to God's will. It's therefore clear that all we design and all we do should be with a submissive dependence on God. In the past few days, as I've been preparing the sermon, as always, I've been very squarely confronted by the things that God has revealed. 
Of course, I've known for a long time that God's will comes first. But that's been tended to be squashed to the back of the cupboard by my own sense of self-importance. And I haven't lived it. Being forced to think these things through, not leaving God out of decisions, recognising his sovereignty over all things good and bad, the fleeting passage of my life, well, it's brought God right to his proper place in the forefront of my life. And I realise that is where he should be and I pray that that is where he will stay. And I pray that thinking those same things through will do the same for you. Let's move on now to verse 16. Two pages to go. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whenever we read God's word, we should be continually comparing ourselves to what we see there. Sometimes it hurts, or it seems unlikely that such strong words would apply to us. And it's often not easy to understand why we should deserve such descriptions. I don't like to think of myself as being a boastful person or an arrogant person. And I'm sure none of you would like that either. What is boasting anyway? The dictionary defines it as proud, ostentatious self-assertion or self-glorification. So, let's look at the situation here to see if the cap fits. Let's just suppose that these men did go to another city and they did business and they were wildly successful. They made piles of money. Who has actually brought that about? Who holds their lives in his hands? Who allowed them to travel there safely? Who is it that gave them those business skills? Who provided the business opportunity? We know that it must have been God, for if we were honest, we will recognise that all things truly come from him. So, is there anything then for these men to be proud about in an ostentatious way? Or has their success anything in it that would rightly give them any glory? Bluntly, the answer must be no. So, they fully deserve to be called boastful and arrogant. Closer to home, it's also clear that we do the same things, making so many assumptions about the course of our lives and therefore we too are boastful. The worst thing is that this proud, ostentatious self-assertion or self-glorification, well, it sets us up really as wanting to look better than God. Probably not deliberately, but thoughtlessly. Although the effect in the end is the same, and that, folks, well, it's evil. James names it, and it is uncomfortable, but it is true. So to our final verse today. Verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So far in this passage, we've heard a full argument for a prosecution. Who done it, what they shouldn't have done, and what they ought to do. They, brethren, well, it's us, it's you and me. We have now received a warning. Because when we deliberately sin by doing the opposite to what we know is right, it is much worse 
than to sin unknowingly. In Luke 12, there's a parable concerning the behaviour of servants. We have an absent master and it contains a warning about this. And it says, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committing things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Since we're finishing like this with all this talk of warnings and sin, I just want to take you back very quickly to what I said earlier. I said, once we get a sense of his great love at work in us, what can our response be but to reply in kind? That guilty kind of fear has no place here. God wants to help us, not hurt. So let us be encouraged as we study God's word today. I would be distressed if anybody went away from here feeling guilty and discouraged, saying to themselves, well, why should we bother? We should and we must bother for this one reason, that Christ first loved us. There is nothing more valuable than all of creation and it has been given to us freely and undeservedly. God certainly appreciates our obedience, but he treasures our love. So let our obedience be the sweet fruit of our love offered to the Heavenly Father. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you first loved us. And out of that great love, Lord, you reached out and you saved us. Thank you, Lord, that you work with us to bring us to a more Christ-like state, that you, you promise us a reward in heaven. Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign. That is your will that determines everything we say and everything we do and everything that we experience. Father, I pray that our eyes would be open to that all the time, that we would include you in that, in that sovereign way in our lives, and that we would follow you, that we would acknowledge you, and that because of that, people would see you and work in our lives and that your work would be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The worship team would like to come up.